Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hello, everybody. I am Lucia Matuonto, and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Hello, listeners. On this episode, the RV is on the road with Elliot Manson. Elliot is from Southern California and is the author of the suspense thriller novel series The Arlington Orders and its sequel, The Legal Killer. So, Elliot, welcome to the RV. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So, Elliot, your father was an attorney and your mother was a school teacher. Is that correct? Correct. That's right. They, uh, my father uh, did uh, real estate and business law and my mother taught uh, elementary school. It seems like the perfect environment for a suspense thriller author to be born. <laughs> well, I, I think it was, you know, I think it was both because uh, there's a lot of uh, intricacies in law and very much so when you write a suspense thriller, there's a lot of twists and turns uh, that, you, that sometimes you'll find in legal cases that, that I kind of were influenced by in terms of, you know, putting those into my book. In terms of my mother being a school teacher, just the love of language, she was always an avid reader and she always uh, enjoyed uh, sharing stories. And I think that had a tremendous impact on me. Uh, it gave me appreciation of loving language and loving how um, the structure of sentences and, and, and how stories flowed along. I think that was uh, her gift to me. Yes, that was a super gift. And have your parents' profession inspired your writing career? Oh, there's no question. And I think uh, I think more so than their profession, just their general attitude. I, I actually, when I was growing up, I, I enjoyed writing stories and poetry and things like that, but I was too embarrassed and, and uh, scared to put it out there. I didn't think anyone would like it. And so oftentimes, you know, I would shove them in desk drawers or they would find them on bits and pieces of scrap paper I had scattered around my room. And they would always tell me, hey, you know, you're really good at this. You ought to try this. And of course, being a teenager, you know, teenagers know everything, right? I was just thinking, ah, it's just mom and dad. What do they know? Uh, but it always had, uh, I think, their, their confidence in me and their abilities to tell stories about what they do kind of influenced the way that I reacted to the world and the way I decided to, to put that into stories. And as I got older, they continued to encourage that. But it wasn't until I was older that I actually had the confidence in my own abilities to uh, actually believe what they were telling me so many years prior to that. So it was just something that was really uh, very, uh, it was a very nurturing environment. But at the same time, you know, um, the, the biggest impediment to any 
uh, writing was my, my myself. Unfortunately, <laughs> I was not I was not confident in my own abilities. Yeah, it happens a lot. Sometimes it takes like one year to start, and then when you start, you don't want to stop. That, that's exactly what I thought all the time when I finally decided that hey, I, I can actually be able to do this. You know, I, I wanted to, I felt like kicking myself because you know it took me so long to believe what they had been telling me for so long. Yes, and Elliot, your books discuss complex issues regarding the Department of Justice, amongst others. Do you do any research for your novels? And if so, how? Oh, boy, I, I do a ton of research for my novels. In fact, I would probably say 80% of what I do is research. Um, I like to take very complex and very controversial issues and put them into fictional stories. Um, I've always been fascinated with people like Dan Brown, how he takes, for instance, he'll take religion and he'll put that into a story. And he uses actual facts and creates a fictional story around those facts. There are a lot of controversial issues going on. In, in my opinion, the Department of Justice, which is what the legal killer covers, is one of the most controversial. And the way I went about it is I, I scheduled interviews with various people who either worked for or worked inside the industry, people who would only speak to me on condition of anonymity. They were frightened. Uh, we've received threats. Uh, you know, it is a very, um, the subject matter that I, that I uh, cover in this book, which is basically the corruption, which is massive in the Department of Justice, just huge. Um, is a very touchy subject and a lot of people don't want it discussed. But at the same time, a lot of people, they don't want to read academic works. I mean, unfortunately, there are a lot of great academic works on the Department of Justice uh, documentary style uh, writings, but people want to be entertained when they read. They want to have a story behind. They want to, they want to have some entertainment value coming from the book. So I thought, how do I inform people? And at the same time, Uh, entertain them and and so to get my message across and that's basically what I hope the legal killer does but I scheduled interviews I read articles I studied cases I studied the methods they use both illegal and legal uh, more illegal than legal to be honest but uh, it's a very frightening part of our justice system hmm. and weren't you afraid about addressing such a controversial topic Oh, I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't afraid. Yeah, I wasn't afraid. And there's reason to be afraid. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, it is uh, things that people don't want discussed about. Um, in my opinion, the Department of Justice operates more like the mafia than they do an actual legal profession and an honorable profession. So uh, people don't like that to be said about uh, what is supposed to be the ultimate in justice in the United States, which is the Department of Justice. To me, it is, an, it, uh, the Department of Justice represents one of the greatest oxymorons out there, you know, like jumbo shrimp. <laughs> Department of Justice is just uh, not something that is, uh, <laughs> it doesn't live up to its branding seal. And what was your inspiration for your first book, uh, The Arlington Orders? Actually, you know, when I first started to write, I didn't know what I wanted to write. People, I think a lot of times people, when they when they know that you can write, the very first thing they say to you is, oh, you should write a book. And of course, the very first reaction is, 
okay about what? You know, what am I going to write about? Uh, it's very easy to tell someone to write a book. It's actually a lot different when you actually have to do it. Um, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I've always had um, a great love of history. I was a history major in school. And uh, one night I was on my couch watching the History Channel, uh, which is something I commonly do. And I was watching a story about uh, a, a little part of history that I kind of knew about, but didn't know a lot about. That was called the Dahlgren Affair, which was, um, it was a story about a young Union colonel. This actually happened in March of 1864. A young Union colonel was killed outside the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. And when the Confederates searched his body, they found a set of orders on him. And the order said, you are to kill President Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, you are to kill everybody in the Confederate government, and you are to burn Richmond to the ground. And this was a huge controversy back then because there was kind of a gentleman's agreement between the two sides that civilian heads of state would not be targeted. So the South wouldn't target Lincoln or anybody in the Union government. And likewise, the North wouldn't do the same to the, the South. They would both honor that agreement. But because the war was going badly, I also knew of another incident where um, they decided to evacuate the capital, which was right around the same time within a few months of each other. The Confederates decided to evacuate the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. And getting the people out wasn't the problem. The problem was they had to move all of their gold and silver reserves, which was the money they used to fight the war. And they couldn't just move it on regular roads because Union troops were everywhere. So they literally devised a secret plan. And the secret plan was to co covertly move it down to uh, Savannah, Georgia, where they would sail it out of Savannah, Georgia to a secret location and then draw on the money when they needed it. They implemented the plan and the gold and silver vanished without a trace. And to this day, no one knows what happened to it. So I took those two stories and I combined them into one. And it the actual book is more of a dark political thriller. A lot of people, when they hear it, they go, oh, that's national treasure. It's not national treasure. It is based in real history. And it talks about a lot of controversial issues that we're talking about in the United States, for instance, states' rights, racial issues, social justice is issues. So it covers a lot of controversial topics. And um, the, uh, the people that find clues in modern times that, who start looking for this don't realize that there are other people looking for it. And it becomes kind of this deadly chase in which uh, the results could change the very future of the country. So it is a very, um, it was a very complex book to write. It took me four years to do a lot of research, but I was pleased with, uh, you know, how it came out at the end. It must be very relieving and it's based on real history. Yeah, it's based on his real history. And I think one of the most important things when you write, I guess it would be uh, called, uh, historical fiction or suspense historical fiction is that when you write historical fiction, you have to make sure that you are true to the historical facts, because once you move from that, the, the story loses its credibility. So you have to make sure that everything works in the time period of that, of when this historical event took place. So for instance, if you were writing a book about George Washington, you wouldn't have him talking on a walkie talkie. Why? Because they didn't exist at those times. So you have to be very careful when you write the book about uh, being as accurate as possible and as true to the history as possible. Yes, that's why it took four years to write this book. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. 
Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the US like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. And I remember you mentioned a lot of films inspiring your writing craft, such as All the President's Men and The Usual Suspects. Is filmmaking something you think about when creating your books? I, I think so. I don't know if I do it consciously, but I think it's there unconsciously. You know, when we study writers, a lot of times we'll study people like maybe Ernest Hemingway or something like that, these traditionally great writers. But they they kind of grew up and matured in a different time when they weren't bombarded with social media or television or movies or music. It was a very different life. And I think it's kind of changed the way that most of us approach the world when we think of stories. Uh, because we are, because TV or um, movies are such an influence in today's world, I think that it influences the way that we see stories developing. And so whether I do it consciously or unconsciously, I'm not sure. But I think a lot of times my style, for instance, a lot, a lot of times my chapters will be very short. And because the chapters will play out almost in scenes. So in movies, scenes tend to be very short. And they're, uh, a movie is basically a collection of scenes that fit together like a large puzzle. Uh, I think that I tend to do that. I, I can't speak for other writers, but I, I would imagine that a lot of writers are influenced by, by the movie and television genre. I don't know how you can't be just with how much is available today. And as we are talking about being influenced by movies, have you thought at all about what your movie adaptations of your novels would be like? Yeah, yeah, I'd be lying if I, if I said I didn't. Um, I see The Usual Suspects. One of the movies that really plays out in my mind um, is JFK, the one that Oliver Stone did. Um, I, I can see my book kind of playing out in that type of framework almost. Um, I, I don't always agree with uh, Oliver Stone's conclusions, but he's a wonderful movie maker. And uh, the way he pieces together clips, especially in that film, which kind of mixed in this uh, like old footage with modern movie footage, it just captured this kind of feeling of, of that era. And I can see my especially the legal killer kind of playing out in that in that sense. Um, I, I don't see my I don't see my books playing out in like the fantasy suspense genre. So much of movies today now are are superheroes. I don't see my books in that kind of light. I see them more complex and more character driven because I think a lot of movies have gotten away from developing the characters and they're more focused on the action. And my books are very character driven. So it, I think it would be necessary to have someone who really focuses on the development of the personalities and the complexity of the issues rather than the spectacular special effects. Yes. And Elliot, whether it's a mystery or a conspiracy theory, it seems we are interested in the art of investigation. 
That's right. And I, and I literally, I try to, uh, I try to avoid the word conspiracy because to me, in fact, I even touch on that a little bit in the book that the difference between investigation, as you say, which is really important and conspiracy is conspiracies tend to lack actual, the factual evidence to back the conspiracy. So what will happen is, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, uh, I believe this happened and this happened and this happened. You say, okay, where's your evidence for that? Well, I, you know, it, they'll they'll pick out something that may seem kind of way out there that just doesn't, you know, is not really backing evidence. Um, conspiracies, I think, are a way that we psychologically try to fill the void and make sense of the world around us in our own minds, but they are not really factually based. Investigation requires facts. And I have to, when I write my books, I, I make sure I'm very careful and I have to be careful about putting in things that are factually based and, and not put in things that be, I really, honestly, the truth most of the times is more interesting than the conspiracy theory. So I try to be very careful when I write my books. And that's why I, I do so much exhaustive research on what I write, because I want to make sure that what I put down is real information and is not something out of left field where people are, you know, going to say, well, you know, it's, I, I know some, some authors who fall into that sometimes with the conspiracy theory. And I think what that tends to do is it kind of tends to uh, make the story lose a little bit of credibility. Whereas if you put exhaustive research behind it, then it's like, oh, I can see where this guy or, you know, or this woman is coming from. I, I get their point. So that's kind of, um, that's kind of what I do. It's mainly uh, research, exhaustive research. Why do you think we as humans are so fascinated with revealing the truth? I think as a species, we have this insatiable need to know. The human experience is, is always trying to figure out the world around us, why certain things are happening, why certain conditions exist, why certain beliefs exist, all these things. And I think that is something that is innate in all of us, that we want to know the truth behind something. It's almost like if you were a kid, right, and you saw a couple of kids whispering secrets and you were jealous that you didn't know what secret they were whispering. I, I think that's just something about human nature, that there's something that in order for us to make sense of the world around us, we want to know the truth. And so I think that revealing that truth or revealing the facts behind something is a, even if it's not pleasant, there's a comfort in it. There's a comfort in it. There's a lot of things that we don't like you know, we don't like to know certain aspects about our history, or we don't like to know certain aspects about uh, maybe a hero that we had. But even though it may be uncomfortable and maybe even painful at times, I think it's something that is uh, important for us and does give us comfort in the long run. Well, I completely agree with you. And I've already got your book. I'm looking forward to start reading it. Well, I hope you uh, enjoy it. It took me uh, some time to write and research, yeah. but, it, but it is a very, uh, I think, the message I think is important. But the way I write my stories is my books never end in a nice, neat bow. My goal is to always make my reader uncomfortable. And I, I want them to question their own belief system. And I've always been fascinated with a uh, character that does the wrong thing, but for the right reason or vice versa. Because I want my reader to look at that character and go, gosh, I, I don't like what they did, but I kind of get why they did it. You know, that, that's kind of how I want them to feel. And then maybe even a sense of guilt that, oh, boy, I, I, I'm empathizing with the bad guy here. You know, that, that kind of thing. It happens to me a lot. <laughs>
And Elliot, any time there is a huge scandal, political or criminal or whatever, I end up being glued to the news trying to figure out what happened. Kofi Annan from the UN talks about how transparency is the essential way to deal with corruption. From the research that you've done, why do you think there is still an issue with transparency? Oh, I think it's you can to uh, put that in in uh, one word: accountability. People don't like to be accountable for their actions um, if they feel, especially if they feel that they are righteous in their goals. And uh, what is you know the, that famous saying: the the road to hell is paved with the best of intentions. Yeah, it, it's very much like that. I think people, uh, especially in like the Department of Justice, uh, feel that they. Uh, they are above the law. Therefore, whatever they do is justified. It, it's uh, something I mentioned in the book is how we substitute in uh, the word conviction for justice. You know, for instance, justice used to mean that you found someone uh, who was, you know, committed a crime and you held them appropriately accountable, right? Uh, but when they started focusing on getting the conviction, eventually that those two words were equated, basically. So uh, the word justice and conviction were equated. So as long as you were getting the conviction, it doesn't matter how you got the conviction, you were still performing justice. And that's how they, not to use that word too much, justified it in their own minds. Well, as long as I got the conviction, so it doesn't matter that I threatened the witnesses or faked evidence or uh, hid evidence or tampered with juries or any of this other stuff that's going on. As long as I got the conviction, justice was being served. And I think there is a... a um, there is a, a need not to be held accountable. People don't like to be held accountable because they don't like to be punished for being held accountable. And that's basically why uh, transparency is so difficult because when we start learning about what's behind some of the actions of whether political leaders or, or um, law department officials or who have you, um, it's not as pretty as we like to make it about. And, and plus I think also, especially when it comes to the legal system, that we've kind of developed this very antiquated look as good and evil is very black and white, that there's no gray matter. So, you know, you'll watch law and order and it's always the same, you know, the, you know, you have the police with the heart of gold and, and my book's not about the state police, but you know, you'll have the attorneys with the heart of gold who care about the victim and the, you know, the defense attorneys always made to look like a slime bag, you know, and in reality, most of the time it's the opposite is true. <laughs> so I think uh, there people don't like to be portrayed in the actual light that oftentimes they are, uh, are performing in, I guess, for lack of a better uh, metaphor. <laughs> you explained very well. Thank you. Of course. And you've mentioned you suffer from anxiety and have described yourself as obsessive, which I'm sure many people can relate to. Do these traits make it difficult for you to know when your work is complete and ready to be published? Oh, gosh. That's like, <laughs> that is, uh, I, I literally torture myself over every word. Uh, I think most writers do this though. And I mean, I try not to read my stories once they've been published because once they've been published, there's nothing I can do about it. But it's, 
you know, because I'll, I'll sometimes I'll read it and I go, oh, why didn't I change that word? Or why did I put the pun? You know, just little things that the average reader is not going to notice, but I obsess about. And I think a lot of writers do that. I am obsessive about my work and I've always been that way. It's both a blessing and a curse. I think it helps in the quality of my writing. And I also think that makes me very miserable at times and very anxious at times. And yeah, I have suffered from anxiety. Uh, I'll, you know, I've had issues with it that I've had to deal with and had to get you know, help for because uh, I expect certain things out of myself, sometimes realistic, sometimes not realistic. And oftentimes I cannot tell the difference. So I need someone to kind of give me a a proper perspective on that where, because uh, as writers, I think we're our worst, our own worst critics. You know, that I think that is something that is very common. I don't think you can sit in front of a piece of work for, you know, sometimes years, you know, trying to fine tune every detail and not be obsessive. I think it's just an, uh, something that comes uh, with the with the work, but uh, it, it does also allow me though to get rid of some of that pent up anxiety because a lot of times I always write better when I'm really angry. So if I'm angry, I can kind of pour it out onto the page, and it kind of is almost like a release, you know, where I'm like, oh, got that off my chest, even though the only person I'm yelling at is the story. So that's kind of how I uh, deal with it. So it, it does have some good qualities, but yeah, it, it's something that. Uh, I have to work on every day and struggle with. Absolutely. How do you know it's ready to go? Um, I don't. I just, I basically, at some point I have to say, you know what, I'm washing my hands of it enough. I always think that there are parts I can improve in a book. There's always, or stories or how I could have developed a character a little better or what, what have you. There's always that part. But at some point I've kind of taught myself, okay, Elliot, you're done with this. All right. I'm pretty good about saying this is the last go through. And after that, I'm, I'm sending it out to the universe. And it's not that I don't obsess about it. It's not that I, I, I always think I could have done something different or better, but uh, I just, that, that is the one thing I am disciplined about is once I say, this is the final review, I say, bam, out the door. Mm-hmm. And I'll try to keep my word to myself. <laughs> and how, Our listeners can find you and your books, Elliot. Please let us know. Oh, okay, great. Uh, my books are available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, Target. Uh, the best way to get information about me, what's going on, is uh, to go to my website, which is elliotmasonbooks.com, Elliot with one T, two L's, one T, elliotmasonbooks.com. And uh, there'll be links to where they can purchase the book. Uh, we ha I have a newsletter that I send out about once a month. Uh, so if you like, you can sign up for the newsletter. You'll get a newsletter about once a month, roughly about once a month, just depending on the news cycle. Um, uh, I have videos. I do a lot of, um, I do movie trailers for my books. Uh, we have four up for the Arlington Orders. Uh, we just completed shooting one for the, uh, the legal killer that will hopefully be out by the middle of next month. We're keeping our fingers crossed. It's going through the editing process. You can follow me on Instagram, Elliot Mason Books, same thing on my Twitter, but those are, uh, the website's probably the best way to get all the information on my books, what's going on with me, uh, links. Uh, but and my book's kind of selling all over the place. Target carries it. Sometimes it's weird. I, I've seen my book translated into Latvian. I have no idea who did it, <laughs> but I've seen my books selling on British websites. I have no idea how they got it, but, you know, but I would say Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, uh, those are, Walmart has it. Those are the best places to get it. 
That's wonderful. Your books are everywhere. Thank you very much for your time. And let us know when you publish your next book. A pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. And I, I hope we can talk again soon. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.